Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We've been looking at the third chapter of John, and in the chapter now, Yeshua has finished talking to Nicodemus. And the scene shifts now to the Jordan countryside where Yeshua and uh, his disciples are baptizing. In a comment on chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, which is remaining here, the Pillar New Testament commentary states this. It says, This is the fourth successive section to point out ways in which Yeshua fulfills and surpasses Judaism. So they're pulling this out of the text. They're seeing, you know, we've seen these different scenes. And that's basically what we're seeing is Yeshua is fulfilling and surpassing Judaism. He says in 2, 1 through 11, Yeshua provides new wine that vastly surpasses anything contemporary Judaism could afford and renders obsolete the stone jars of purification. We saw that context. This is new wine. Those purification jars, they're done away. In 2, 12 through 25, Yeshua displaces the temple and thereby intimates that the temple's proper role is best seen as anticipation of the ultimate point of meditation between God and men. So Yeshua replaces the temple. He is the temple. In 3, 1 through 21, Yeshua fulfills prophecies of a water and spirit regeneration and proves in his death to be the ultimate antitype of the snake lifted up in the desert. And hence, 3, 22 through 30, the remainder of this chapter, Yeshua surpasses John the Baptist and any baptism or rite of purification he may represent. And that's what we see now. John the Baptist is coming on the scene again to share some testimony. And we're going to see that he is being replaced by Yeshua. Now, let me just mention to you that in these verses here, there are some who suggest that the paragraphs in this section are not in the right order. Okay? <laughs> verses 22 to 36, they say, are out of order. There are several solutions that have been proposed to fix this problem. I think the simplest solution is that of reversing the order of verses 22 through 30 and verses 31 through 36. That way, verses 31 through 36 would follow on Nicodemus' discourse. And the conflict between disciples of John the Baptist and Yeshua mentioned in 22 to 30 would flow naturally into chapter 24. There's a whole lot of other suggestions of how these paragraphs should go, but just, and I don't want to bore you with all the details, there's more in the notes, but in my view, none of these solutions are necessary if we just think that Lazarus is guided by the Spirit, and, you know, he's laying it out the way he wants it to be. You know, we might not understand it. You know, so that's the problem with we don't understand some things that are biblical. We try making them so we can understand them. He put them in this way for a reason. Now, let's just accept that and go on, all right? Let's just assume Lazarus got it right, okay? <laughs> I know it's a step, but let's just assume that, and we'll go from there, all right? Our text this morning is the final testimony of John the Baptist. Now, before we look at John's last testimony in this gospel, let me remind you of what Yeshua had to say about John, just so you get your thinking right about John. In Matthew 11, he says, As these men were going away, Yeshua began to speak to the crowds about John. This is John the Baptist. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, that wasn't the right answer. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? He says, yes. And I tell you, the one who is more than a prophet. So Yeshua is telling us, here's this prophet who is actually more than a prophet. Now let me ask you something. Is John the Baptist an old covenant prophet or a new covenant prophet? Okay, yeah, he is an old covenant prophet. He's the last of the old covenant prophets. And we're going to see him fading off the scene today. Uh, Matthew 11, 11. Yeshua says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, which is most people, okay, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's a pretty glowing recommendation, especially since it comes from Yeshua. So John's a very special man, raised up for a very special purpose, and these are his final words in this gospel. In 3.22 it says, After these things, Yeshua and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. After these things, after what things? 
Well, Yeshua and his disciples had been in Jerusalem, right? That's where he cleanses the temple. Temple's in Jerusalem. That's where they were. The conversation with Nicodemus takes place in Jerusalem. And then he says, after these things, Yeshua and his disciples came into the land of Judea. So they basically left Jerusalem. That's what this means. All right. They left Jerusalem. They went out into the countryside. Now, the expression after these things really gives us no indication of the length of the interval. We don't know how long. But at some point after these things, they went out into the countryside of Judea. Now, what does he mean here by Judea? Well, Israel was divided into three great regions back then. Judea was in the south and included Jerusalem. North of Judea was Samaria. And north of Samaria was the region of Galilee, which included the Sea of Galilee. After conquering Israel, now remember at this time they're under Roman rule, the Romans created the providence of Judea, which included Samaria, Judea, and Idumea, which was a non-Jewish region immediately south of Judea. So Judea referred both to an Israeli religion region and to a Roman providence that was about three times larger than the Judean region. The land of Judea refers to the region. So Yeshua and his disciples had left Jerusalem, but they didn't go far. You see Jerusalem there. They just went out into the area of Judea. Just outside, basically, left the city limits. And he said there we're spending time with them and baptizing. Now, this is the only record in the Gospels of Yeshua engaged in a baptizing ministry similar to John the Baptist. The only time you're going to find it is here. But chapter 4, if you read ahead, specifies that Yeshua himself wasn't baptizing anybody. Let's go uh, to chapter 4. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Yeshua was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Yeshua himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Now, Lazarus put it in... in This in the text, evidently, he wants us to understand that Yeshua was controlling this. He's in charge of this, but he's not actually doing the baptizing. His disciples are doing the baptizing. They're just doing it under his authority. Now, what kind of baptism is Yeshua doing here? This is a Christian baptism? Not yet. That's right. It's a baptism unto repentance. Look at Matthew 4.17. From that time, Yeshua began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's pretty much what John the Baptist was doing, wasn't it? No, it's exactly what John the Baptist was doing, okay? 3, 1, and 2. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeshua and John are doing the same thing, preaching the same thing. They have parallel ministries. They're both baptizing. They're both preaching repentance. John moves south. Or John moved from the south to the north. He went up in a more northern direction and he left Yeshua to baptize down south in Judea around Jerusalem. Now, when did things change? When did Yeshua's disciples begin the baptism of Christ? Christian baptism. When did that happen? That happened after the resurrection. We see that in Matthew 28, a familiar passage. And Yeshua came up and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, It's interesting that when he sent them out, he sent them out in an orderly fashion. They were to go in a certain direction. Look what he says in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, starts there, right? That's where it all began. And in Judea, that's just the outskirts. We're getting out of the city now. We've seen that. And Samaria, oh, we're heading north. And even to the remote part of the earth. So they're commanded to take the gospel first to the Jews, next to the Samaritans, finally to the Gentiles. Now I want you to remember this order because when we get in the next chapter, in chapter 4, we're going to see this order played out. Alright, this is the order that he's going. He says, there he was spending time with them. 
This is true discipleship. This is what discipleship's about. A disciple would spend their entire time listening to the teacher, to the rabbi. They didn't sign up for discipleship classes for two hours one day a week. Alright? And we do that a lot now, and I know that's, I, th- I guess that's better than nothing. But, you know, Christianity is not spread by a class, it's spread by a life, you know, and, and a teaching of the truth. But they would follow that disciple, that rabbi. They would find a rabbi that would accept them, they would follow him wherever he went, they would go. They ate together. They stayed in the same place. They watched him live and they learned from that. And he took opportunities in life for teaching moments. Okay, here's a situation. Well, here's how you deal with that situation. Can you imagine following Yeshua around, just listening to him talk and watching him do things? You know, maybe we're sometimes we're envious of those guys, but let me tell you something, people. We can spend time with Yeshua all we want right now. Right now. I don't think we spend near as much time as we should, but we can spend all the time we want. And if we're going to be his disciples, we got to learn from him, which means spending time with him, because if we are his disciples, we're called to be like him. And that was the, in his, this day, that was what discipleship was. When it, when someone came to the rabbi and asked if he could be his disciple, he was basically asking the rabbi this question, do you think I can be like you? That's what he's asking. Can I be like you? Well, let's see. And so we want to be like the rabbi, but the only way that is going to happen is if we spend time in the Word of God, immersing ourselves in it, learning of Him. And this is where we're lacking today. Most Christians have no clue of what the Bible says, except what they hear somebody else say that it says. Don't believe those people. Get in for yourself. And find out what it says. One of the most important things we could do. So, you know, he is spending time with his disciples. Verse 23. John also was baptizing in Anon near Selim because there was much water there. Uh, So, you know, uh, all the Baptists hit on this verse, right? There's a lot of water there. He wasn't sprinkling, okay? (laughs) He wouldn't need a lot of water if he's sprinkling. So, they're getting wet. There's a lot of water there. And people were coming and were being baptized. Now, at this stage in his ministry, John seems to be moving up and down the Jordan River, offering baptism, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Anon is the Aramaic word that means wells. And Selim, they're both located right around in that area there. Alright? It's northeast of Samaria, near the western bank of the Jordan River, about 13 miles south from the Sea of Galilee. Both these places, Anan and Selim, are in Samaria. Okay? They're both in Samaria, and I think that's important for our understanding. John has moved into Samaria. He went north. Yeshua stays in the regions around Jerusalem. So Yeshua's baptizing down there. John's a little further north. John is still ministering and preaching repentance. He's preaching that the Messiah had come, and he's telling people who the Messiah are, and he's calling the nation Israel, to repent. Yeshua began to do the same thing as well. Yeshua's preaching repentance, he's preaching the kingdom, he's declaring himself as the Messiah, and he's baptizing people. So these ministries of John and Yeshua overlap for a while. That's because there's a transition going on. John is going to be faded out, Yeshua and the new covenant coming in, moving in that direction. Then John interjects this parenthetical explanation. And you wonder, what is he talking about? He says, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Why in the world did Lazarus feel his readers needed to know this? I mean, if he just said John was baptizing. So if he's baptizing, we know he's not in prison. It's not a prison ministry he's carrying on. So why did he have to tell us this? Well, the reason is that Lazarus adds this because his gospel is written decades after the other three Gospels. And probably many of his readers had read one of those Gospels. And they might have questioned why his account of Yeshua's ministry didn't match the order of the other three Gospels. See, the other three started from the beginning of Yeshua's ministry in Galilee. After John the Baptist had been arrested. That's where all the other Gospels start. But Lazarus' account of Yeshua's ministry doesn't start at Galilee. 
But in Jerusalem, with John the Baptist not yet being thrown into prison, he's still out there ministering. So they're ministering together. And so you read the Gospels and you pay attention and you say, why is this different? He's given us an account that the others just don't give. So to avoid confusion, Lazarus explained in his Gospel that he was describing Yeshua's earlier ministry in and around Judea before he migrated north into Galilee. And during that period, about which Matthew, Mark, and Luke say nothing, John the Baptist was preaching in Samaria as Christ ministered in the nearby Judea. So, as is characteristic of John, we learn things in this Gospel you're not going to see anywhere else. Now, from the fourth Gospel alone, do we learn that between Yeshua's temptation and John the Baptist's arrest, John and Yeshua baptized the same time, carrying on the same ministry. After John had been taken into custody, Yeshua came into Galilee, Mark tells us, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. See, only from Lazarus do we learn about this earlier time, when they ministered together. They both seemed to be doing the same exact thing, baptizing repentant Jews. John continued preaching and baptizing until something stopped him. What stopped John from preaching? Herod. Excuse me, he lost his head. It's kind of hard to preach after that, okay? But it was time for his ministry to end, you know, and it ended. Verse 25 says, Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. This is about obscure as a verse can get, okay? It's really hard. There's so many questions here, and you can speculate all you want, and you can make stuff up, but it's best to just try to stick with the text and see what he's saying here. He says there's a discussion. Now, here's one thing that I can tell you for sure, all right? The Greek word here is zetasis, and it's a strong word. It would better be translated controversy or confrontation. Okay, they're not sitting down, hey, what do you think of this? Hey, what do you... No, they're going at it, okay? This is a, a fierce confrontation. Between, it says, a Jew, um, the older man, some of the manuscripts have the plural here, but the newer manuscripts have the singular, a Jew. So I think it's probably best that it's a singular person that they're who it is. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. So we don't, there's not a lot of revealed here, but they're debating the practice of purification. So what are they arguing about? I don't know. Maybe this Jew says, look, the old covenant issues and teachings of purification are far superior to John. What John's doing as far as... They're superior from Yeshua. And so maybe that's what they're arguing about here. We don't really know, but we know it's about purification. Now, what's interesting is this word purification is the same word that's used in John 2.6 about the stone pots for purification when he turned water into wine. So the real point at issue here is the authority of Yeshua or John to overturn the system of ritual purification. That seems to be what the question here. I guess we just don't have a lot of details here other than what's in the text. But whatever happened, it, one thing is obvious. This Jew fired up John's disciples, okay, because they run back to John. But the issue is what they say to John seems to have no connection with this verse. Okay? They don't go back and say, hey, we got some questions for you about purification. We were talking to this Jew and he said, look what they say. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, that's Yeshua, to whom you have testified, that's Yeshua, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Like, wait a second, what in the world is the connection here? I don't know. I can't tell you. I mean, you know, they get into some discussion about purification. Maybe Yeshua's name came up in the discussion. He's doing the same thing, you know, and they're saying, and maybe, you know, when they say, hey, Yeshua's doing that same thing your guy's doing, but he's got a lot more people following him. So now these disciples are fired up, and they're like, wait a minute. Go back to John, and let's tell him what's going on. They seem to be upset that everyone's going to Yeshua. That just makes me question, how good of disciples are you of John? Okay. Because that would mean no one's coming to them. Yeshua's popularity was increasing, and John's was fading. We see that in 4.1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Yeshua had been making and baptizing more disciples than John. He's baptizing. That's how it's supposed to be, right? 
Apparently, John's disciples are worrying about John. Hey, wait a minute, John, your ministry's fading. Yeshua's taking your glory. And it seems that John's disciples had developed a very partisan attitude about loyalty to him. Well, you're of Yeshua, but we're of John. And wait a second, we, we still got some disciples here. You know, and especially when you think of the history of John. I mean, for some time, he had been the star attraction. People were coming out, walking mile, 20 miles to go see and hear him preach. Remember what we saw earlier in this gospel? There came a man sent from God whose name was John. In introducing John the Baptist, Lazarus stressed, God sent this man. All right? He comes from God. And John's having this huge success. Notice what Mark tells us. All the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John comes out of the desert preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, and all Judea and Jerusalem go out. In fact, all the country round about, they go out to hear him. There's a huge revival. This is confirmed by Josephus, the Jewish historian. He says, many flocked to him, for they were greatly moved by hearing his words. But now John's ministry is fading away. That's hard for a preacher to deal with. But the thing is interesting here is John's not having a problem with it. His disciples are having a problem with it. Okay? To whom you have testified. Notice, they don't use Yeshua's name. He who was with you beyond the Jordan. Remember that other guy who was over there with you? The one you're testifying? He's testifying about they don't know his name. They know his name. They're jealous. They don't even want to mention his name. Now, the tense for the Greek word here, testified, implies that John the Baptist had testified to Yeshua in the past, and he was still testifying to him now. In fact, he's going to continue to testify in verses 27 through 30. He says, all are coming to him. You think that's a little bit of an exaggeration? This is one of the places, one of the many places in Scripture where all does not mean everybody or all. You know, some people get this this literal view of the Scripture. It says all, must mean all. Was everybody going to Yeshua? Were all the Pharisees flocking to Him? All the Sadducees? All No! This sounds like what the Pharisees said in John 12. So the people who were with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead, because they had heard that He had performed this sign, so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. They'll say, see the whole world. Everybody's going, no. All doesn't always mean all. World doesn't mean everybody all the time. What John's disciples were saying is a bit of hyperbole. They're basically jealous for their Rabbi John, and so they're exaggerating the situation. He's getting more people than we are. There's a little bit of competition going on here. You know, I think we find this in Scripture, and you see it in different places. I think four of the greatest men in the Bible face this problem of comparison and competition, not themselves, but their disciples. Their disciples had a problem. For example, we see it in Moses' life. When the Spirit came on two men in the camp and they began to prophesy, (laughs) what happens? Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain him. What were they doing wrong? Well, they're prophesying. Well, Moses does that. Wait, you guys shouldn't be doing that. And so how did Moses reply? And Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would to God that all Yahweh's people were prophets, that Yahweh would put His Spirit upon them all. Moses has no problem with this. That's okay. Because Moses is one of the meekest men on all the earth. Okay, He doesn't have a problem with this. But his disciple does, all right? Yeshua had this same problem with his disciples. You know, John saw someone casting out demons in Yeshua's name, and he tried to prevent him because he wasn't part of their group. And Yeshua replied, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Paul faced the same problem. You know, Paul's in prison. And because he's in prison, other people are becoming more bold in his absence to preach the gospel. But some weren't preaching for the right sake. And so his disciples are like, wait a minute, they're they're not doing the right thing. 
Look at Philippians 1.15. Some to be sure are preaching Christ. All right, so Christ being preached, but watch. From envy and strife. They're preaching from envy and... That's a great motive to preach the gospel, isn't it? He says, but some also from goodwill. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They want to promote themselves. You know, Paul's in prison. Let us preach now and we'll get the recognition. Rather from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my prison. They're preaching to make it distressful for me. They're trying to upset me. But Paul says, listen, guys, don't worry about me. He's telling the Philippians, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. He is, he doesn't care what they're, he doesn't care that they're trying to hurt him, they're trying to put him down, they're trying to make his life more difficult. He doesn't care about that. All he cares about is that Christ is exalted. And this is the same thing we see here with John the Baptizer. Some of the man's disciples are more zealous for his reputation than he is. And that happens a lot. You know, just because someone says they're a disciple of someone doesn't mean they're really reflecting that man correctly. John's disciples were jealous for him. Which, you know, when you stop and think about this for a little bit, how strange is that? What was John's ministry? His whole ministry was to point to Christ. And they're saying, they're jealous because Christ is getting more recognition than... Well, that's his ministry. That's what he's all about. Look at John 1.23. He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Remember they come there they say, are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, no. What are you? I'm just a voice. Crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of Yahweh. As Isaiah the prophet said. I'm just here to point to Yahweh. That's all I do. So I have to ask. Why were these men following John? I mean, John should not have had disciples at this point. Everybody following John should have, oh, we're going over to Christ. Because that's what John's telling them to do. Follow Christ. He's the one. I'm not. Go to Him. Why were these disciples even there? They should have been following the Lord. Their rabbi was pointing them to Christ, but they just keep following the rabbi. John. And so the Lord took care of that, and he had John put to death by Herod. And even after that, they kept following John. And a lot of scholars think a lot of things that Lazarus has to say in this book are trying to get to these disciples of John that were still out there. He still had disciples. And it's just, it blows my mind. It really does, because I'm thinking, well, he's saying, go to Christ, go to Christ, go to Christ, follow Christ. I'm nothing. I can't even untie his shoes. Go follow him. And they're saying, ah, oh, we love you, John. We're going to hang with you. No, you're messing the whole thing up. All right? Look at Acts 19, 1 through 3. It happened that when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples. All right, he's at Ephesus. He finds some disciples. And he says to them, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believe? So, here's some disciples who are believing disciples. And they said to him, No. We've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Well, that's interesting. What? And he said to them, Well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. These are disciples of John's. All right? Many have assumed these people are Christians because it says they're disciples and they believe, but he makes it clear they don't have the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Therefore, they're not saved. What these men believe was the message of John the Baptist. Now, this is about AD 56 to 57, some 20 years after the Lord's death. And John still got disciples. This is crazy. Concerning John's message. Now watch the next verse in Acts 19.4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That's Yeshua. That's John's ministry. And he tells these people in Acts, listen, you guys are hanging on. You're supposed to be going after Yeshua. That's his message. Believe in Yeshua. Now, thinking about this, this tells me that people can be avid followers of a man 
and not know what that man teaches. Do you think that's clear here? Did these guys understood what John was saying? If they did, why were they there? And I think we still see this today. There's people, they're avid followers of somebody, and you ask them, what does he teach? I don't know, I just really like the way he looks, or what, you know, he's a nice guy, or this, or that. You know, I mean, that's so true today. Okay? I mean, ask people, you, you find one of Joel's followers, it won't be hard to find, okay? Find one of Joel's followers, say, why, why do you like Osteen? What, you know, what does he teach? See if they can give you anything. Well, they can't because he doesn't teach anything, but you know, you know what I mean, all right? They're following a man. They don't have a clue what he's teaching because his whole messages go to Yeshua. They knew John's teaching. They wouldn't even be following. And John answered and said, so, all right, the disciples come to John. They're all worried. Oh, man, you know, that guy over there, that other guy, you know, the guy you baptized, well, he's getting more disciples, and, you know, what's going on here? So John says, he answers the disciples, calm down guys, and he says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. That's it guys, you get that? John is saying his God-given role is to be a voice to point to Yeshua. That's it. That's what I was called to do. And he says, I can't do anything outside that role because you can't receive anything unless it's been given you from heaven. God has called me to be a voice. Listen, that truth applies to all spiritual matters, including our salvation. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. Pilate thought he had authority over Christ, didn't he? He says that. Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? I'm in charge around here. What did Yeshua say to him? He says, Yeshua answered, you would have no authority over me unless. So he's not disagreeing. He did have authority, but you wouldn't have it unless it had been given you from above. Same thing, given from heaven. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The only authority anyone has is that given to them by Yahweh. We don't like this. Sometimes, but if you understand the sovereignty of God, you understand He's in control. As a matter of fact, you could take it further, anything we have comes from His hand. Whether it be super talents, a really smart brain, good look, whatever you have, it comes from Him. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? In other words, just pick out something. What do you have you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast? <laughs> Someone gave that to you. What are you boasting about? You know, he's really attacking pride here. You know, what is wrong with you that you're boasting about something that you got as a gift? It was given to you. Yeshua, Yahweh's sovereign. Anything we have comes from his hand. Augustine said in one of his works on predestination, he says this. You know, I used to think that all of the blessings of life came from my faith. You ever been there? You know, in other words, you, things are going good for you, and you're like, well, that's because I really am a trusting individual. You know, I, I trust God. I'm, you know, that's why He's just blessing me to death. And you're having a hard time because your faith's a little weak over there, right? He said, I thought that I was responsible for my faith. I read a statement from Cyprium, and Cyprium said we couldn't have anything that was not given us by God you know, that started me thinking, he said. And my thoughts came to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, where the Apostle Paul writes something quite similar. For Paul therefore writes, What do you have that you haven't received? And if you received it, why are you boasting in it as if you're the source? What do you have that you have not received? I began to see that all of my blessings came from God, even my faith, which I thought was the source of all my blessings which was mine. I really saw it as not mine, but as something given me from God. See, the light came on, and he realized that everything, what do you have that you hadn't received? It's a gift of God. Please grasp the significance of what John's saying here. He says a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. 
And people say, well, I have what I have because I worked really hard for it. Who gave you the health and the intelligence and everything else to be able to do that? See, we think it's just, you know, oftentimes we're just too humanistic in our thinking. We, we evolved to this or we accomplished this on our own. Listen, if you're not thankful to God for everything you have, then you're missing the boat. He goes on to say, you yourselves are my witnesses that I've said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent here ahead of him. He's, that's the same thing he said in chapter one. He says, I'm not the Christ, guys. You know, I don't know how John could have made it any clearer if anyone was listening to him. All right. And John 180 says, I'm not the light. And John 121, he says, I'm not Elijah and I'm not the prophet. And 123, he says, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. In John 127, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Okay? And a lot more things. John humbled himself and exalted Christ. It was to him, it was just all about Christ. Now look at verse 29. It gives us an illustration here. It says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Got that so far? Bride and bridegroom, right? But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John said, I'm just, you know, you guys are worried about my ministry. I'm full of joy that people are going to him. Because my ministry is about him. All right? Let's talk about weddings for a minute here. So we get a a setting here, what's going on. In the first century Judaism, it works something like this. After the marriage was agreed upon, the bridegroom would go to his father's house and begin to build onto that. That was the normal course. They wouldn't go out and build a new house or rent an apartment. All right, They'd go to the father's house. They'd add three walls and a roof. They'd actually build a room. That's just, just kept happening. You keep enlarging the family. You're adding onto the family. And he still had other things to do, whether he was a shepherd or whatever. He still has normal duties. So this would take a while. So it was usually about a year. And when he got it done, the father would say, okay, things are ready. Go get your bride. And he would go back to get his bride. All right, he would do that. You know, this betrothal period, we have to understand, was not like a modern engagement. It was much more binding than that. There had to be a divorce to break that betrothal period. When the bridegroom, you know, finished that house, he would go and he would call for his bride. And I think that's the idea here, the voice in 329. You hear his voice. He says, I hear the voice of the bridegroom. A wedding feast would then ensue, and he would take his bride to her new home and he'd consummate the marriage. Well, John is saying that Yeshua is the bridegroom. We got that right. Those who believe in him are the bride. And John is saying he is the friend of the bridegroom. When the bridegroom comes calling for his maiden bride, any feeling of jealousy by his friend would be inappropriate. Man, he's coming to get the bride. It's his bride. That's cool. He should feel nothing but complete joy for his friend. You know, he's just, he's thrilled about it. Yes, come and get your bride. This is cool. I'm, you know. Now, the friend of the bridegroom here, let's talk about this for just a second. This term seems to have been more appropriate to Judea. Biblical historians tell us that the the Galilee didn't have quite the same marriage customs as the Judeans. And you think, man, they're so close, you know, but they have different views. The Synoptic Gospels use the phrase children of the bride chamber, which may reflect this difference. Now, in Judea, it was the custom for two groomsmen to be in attendance upon the bridal couple. Now, think about this, all right? You got two groomsmen. One of them stays with the bride. The other goes with the groom. And these two bridegroomsmen, these groomsmen, are really acting as intermediaries, okay? They're finding out from the bride, what do you need? Well, how can we, you know, and they're finding out from, they're talking together, and they're trying to, while these people are apart, remember, they're separate for a year, they're talking and making all the arrangements and working everything out. At the wedding, the groomsmen would offer gifts, um, they would attend the bride and the groom during the seven days of fasting, and even escorted them to the bridal chamber. It was the duty of the friend of the bridegroom to present the bride, the groom to his bride at the wedding ceremony, and after the marriage to remain uh, proper terms between the two parties. Even after they were married, these guys would work together to make sure everything worked out. Now, in rabbinical writings, we find they describe the archangels Michael and Gabriel as acting as the friends of the bridegroom to Adam and Eve. 
and the first wedding in salvation history in the Garden of Eden. The writings of the rabbis also identify Moses as the friend of the bridegroom who leads out the bride Israel to meet the groom, Yahweh, at Mount Sinai. Now, John the Baptist presents himself as fulfilling the same function for Yeshua. Now, according to expositor J.C. Ryle, the friend of the groom was the means of communication between him and the prospective bride during the period of their courtship. All right, he's going between the parties. His job was to promote the bridegroom's interests by explaining his feelings to her and trying to remove any obstacles that might interfere with the marriage between the two of them. In the process, he says, this friend might come to know the lady well enough to become her confidant, and there was at times the risk of a romance developing between them. You understand that? Okay, the the groom's away, and so this groomsman is spending the whole time with the bride, and it's like, all of a sudden, there's a relationship developing there. He says, but the friends allowing this to happen was considered an ultimate betrayal of the bridegroom's friendship. He says, even as far back as Samson's time, and he used Judges 14 there, whose friend companion married his fiance. Remember that? And then Samson goes, oh, I'll kill a bunch of y'all for this, you know. And he was upset about it, all right? So there's good evidence that in ancient Sumerian and Babylonian laws, the best man was absolutely prohibited from marrying the bride. They even had laws about this because of the way the situation was. You know, I mean, when you start thinking about it, you say, that makes a lot of sense. You know, here's my groomsman hanging out with my future wife all the time, and I'm away. And all of a sudden, they develop a relationship. Oh, that's not good. And John's saying, that's not happening here, okay? I'm not developing a relationship with Yeshua's church. It's his church. And when he comes, I am joyful to hear his voice as he comes to get her. I'm not sad. Because I'm not trying to take his place. John is in effect saying, I'm the forerunner. I'm announcing the bridegroom has come. So he likens himself to the one who's announcing Israel that the fact that her bridegroom has come and that she's to be united to him. And he's calling individuals to spiritual preparation for this great marriage. In the Tanakh, Yahweh is often pictured as the bridegroom or husband. And Israel's his bride. For example, in Isaiah, Yahweh tells Israel, For your husband is your maker. That's him, whose name is Yahweh of hosts. 65 of Isaiah, verse uh, 62, verse 5 says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. In Hosea 2.16, Yahweh tells Israel that in the future, they will call Yahweh my husband. And he promises in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. So there's this relationship, a marriage relationship going on. Now James Boyce makes this point. He says, now if Yahweh is Israel's bridegroom in the Old Testament, and John the Baptist proclaims Yeshua as Israel's bridegroom here, then it's an affirmation that Yeshua is Yahweh. You see that connection? I, I love it. When I read this from Boyce. I'm like, yeah, that is awesome. That's exactly what it's. And we saw we saw this over and over all through this gospel. That's what he's. That's what he is trying to say. All right, Yeshua is Yahweh. He says Jesus is God. Whether or not John the Baptist put the two halves of this equation together, it is evident that the Apostle John, through the Holy Spirit, wants us to put them together. If God is the bridegroom and Yeshua is the bridegroom, then Yeshua is God. Simple as that. And that's, that's a clear picture that we're seeing here. He says, so this joy of mine has been made full. And the Greek tense here suggests that John's joy was fulfilled at a point in time in the past and it continues to be fulfilled. The noun join, the verb rejoice are used three times in this verse. Instead of a competitive spirit, John the Baptist is rejoicing that the groom is coming for his bride. He hasn't gotten attached to her over this, you know, betrothal period and wants to steal her from him. He's like, it's his bride. I hear his voice and I'm rejoicing at that. You know, let me tell you something about joy, people, that I really firmly believe. You cannot have joy without humility. 
Can't do it. All right? Why? Because proud people always think they deserve more than they have, and so they're not happy. Because I deserve more. So they never have joy. Because they never get what they really want. Whereas a humble person who thinks they belong and should have nothing, thrilled with anything they get, and they just have joy over the simplest things in life. Let me show you an illustration that I think really brings this forth, this idea of pride and humility. Um, let's go to a little story of Haman here, okay? You know the story, I'm sure. I love, every time I read this, I just smile. You know, it's just, you see the sovereignty of God through this whole, everything that happened, you know? Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches. He's talking to his friends, talking to his world. Let me tell you how awesome I am. Let me tell you how great I have it. He says, he tells the number of his sons in every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther, the queen, let no one but me (laughs) come with the king to the banquet. All right, he, he doesn't get what's happening here. He thinks it's a good thing. All right, she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. So I got all this stuff going for me. It's awesome. I'm in a great position. And watch what he says. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai, that Jew sitting in the king's gate. His pride would not let him enjoy a thing that he had. Mordecai wouldn't bow to him because he was a Jew and that just ate him up. Everybody else would bow to him. That wouldn't make him happy because he wanted this one to bow to him. That's pride. It's just never, ever satisfied. Well, I'm sure you know the rest of the story. Haman's pride, the Bible says a man's pride will bring him low. Okay? This brought him high first on the gallows and then dropped him pretty low. All right? The gallow he had built for Mordecai, he gets hung on. All right? It's just an awesome demonstration of pride. When asked what were the three most important Christian virtues, Augustine replied, humility, humility, humility. (laughs) This is the great virtue, and it's really in short supply in our culture. Our culture doesn't promote that in any way, shape, or form. Our culture promotes pride. And pride is an issue we all face, and we have to learn to deal with it. And it's amazing, you know, go back to 1 Corinthians 4 or 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Okay, then why are you proud? So how do we deal with it? If we are proud, how do we deal with it? How do we become humble people? Well, humility is first a feeling toward God. All right? Now, see how you fit in here. It's a feeling towards God that He has the absolute right over your life, that He can do with you as He pleases, that He has the absolute authority to tell you what is best for you, and that's just fine with you. It's a spirit of utter yieldedness and submissiveness to the Lord as Master. See, the humble person sees himself as clay in the potter's hand. Whatever God does, He's not saying, how dare you, God? No, He's saying, you know, that's way better than I deserved anyway. Thank you. He's submitting to the Lord. He sees the Lord as high and lifted up in Himself as a humble creature. Secondly, it's not just a relationship between the Lord. It's with other people. Humility means feeling indebted to all people because of how graciously God has treated us. It's the opposite of feeling that everybody owes you something. That entitlement mentality is bred in this country, and that that mentality is sickening. Okay, Don't you love being around people who expect so much from you? Well, I just deserve for you to do this. Why? You know, why do you get that? Where do you get that from? You know? And I mean, there are some relationships, of course, which, you know, that may be true. You may owe somebody something. But more people with this entitlement mentality, they just think because of who they are, everybody owes them everything. They should be taken care of. But the more you are driven by what others owe rather than by what you owe them, you just become more and more proud. The humble person doesn't have an indebtedness like that. He feels, ah, you don't owe me anything. Man lives in dependence upon God. And understanding that is humility. That's what humility is. And if you don't think you live in dependence upon God, you need to spend more time in the Bible. Okay? 
Because from beginning to end, we see everything is under his control. Pride is self-sufficient. I can do it. I got this. Just let me go. And, and that self-sufficiency will affect your attitude towards your fellow men. Because if we're conscious of our entire dependence upon God and all of our abilities, we're not going to pride ourselves on things. We're going to realize that ah, whatever I have is from His gracious hand. Andrew Murray wrote this. Humility, the place of entire dependence upon God. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy 8, the Lord says, I led you in the wilderness. I let you be hungry. I did all this. Why? To show you that you're dependent upon me. I want you to understand your dependence. I think that's hard for Americans to grasp. Why? Because we don't pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We say, if I need some bread, I got a credit card. I got cash. We got a grocery store down the street. I got a pantry full of stuff. I don't, why would I pray that prayer? We see, because of those things falsely give us a sense of security. You want to look around the globe what's going on right now? There are some people, the grocery stores are totally empty. And they maybe are coming to the point of saying, give us this day our day our daily bread. Because we don't have any more. We have to realize no matter how much we have, I don't care how much money you got in the bank, I don't care how many pensions you have, I don't care anything. Every breath, every day, you're dependent upon God to live. There's no guarantee of any of that stuff. All right, let me go back to Andrew, all right? He says, humility, the place of entire dependence upon God, is from the very nature of things, the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature, and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. That's a problem when we get prideful. All right? Now, John had great joy because he was a humble man. I mean, listen, it's got to have been a little tough for him. I'm out there. I'm in the forefront. The crowds are coming to me, and all of a sudden my ministry is fading away, and everyone's going to Yeshua, and his disciples just sweating. And he's like, yeah, no, it doesn't bother me because I know my calling, and that was my calling to point to him. He's here. I can fade off. He wasn't jealous. He wasn't competitive. He was a humble servant. Boy, we could use more of these people today in the ministry. Because today it's all about how many people are at your church. So I guess that's how God keeps me humble, okay? (laughs) He's got a way of doing that. And you know, I'm really fine with that because I've seen too many people go off the rails as the church really started growing. You just get this view of your importance and you think, I must be special that these people come here. You know, I must be special. And so all of a sudden they, you know, they mess up. John had joy because he was a humble servant. And he says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now the term must here is day. It's very significant. Literally it reads like this. It is necessary for him to increase and for me to decrease. The phrase it's necessary was a frequent expression in Judaism to describe God's will. It's sometimes referred to as the divine necessity. It's a strong affirmation of John's understanding of himself as a simple forerunner to the greater and more significant ministry of Yeshua. He's got to increase. I need to decrease. That's what my ministry is about. You know, this text that we have looked at in today's message, it represents a transition from the Old Covenant to the New. The last Old Covenant prophet is superseded by Yeshua. And he's graciously fading off the scene because the Messiah is now on the scene. John's decreasing was simply part of the end of that old covenant dispensation to which he was a prophet. But John rejoiced in the knowledge that the new covenant was now coming in. He must increase, but I must decrease. Needs to be the desire of each and every one of our hearts. This is what Christianity is all about, people. is Him becoming more and us becoming less. That by our lives, Christ would increase and we would decrease. When William Carey was dying, he turned to a friend and he said, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone be magnified. That's what it's about, people. He's got to increase. Don't be talking always about yourself, your ministry, your this, your that. Talk about your Savior. Glorify Him. Exalt Him. That's what John does. I'm here. I want to decrease. It's all about that. 
The only way Christ will increase and we will decrease, people, the only way, because we got a problem with pride, every one of us, the only way this will happen is if we spend a lot of time in fellowship with Him. We need to get off by ourselves. We need to get alone with the Lord and just spend some time with Him. When's the last time you did that? You know, we live in a society that's so plugged into, you know, phones. People don't even watch where they're going anymore. I mean, it's crazy. I'm riding my bike down the oceanfront, and you got to yell at people, hey, because they're like this, walking. And they walk right in front of you. And I'm like, you got this beautiful ocean that just strikes me of the majesty of God. You're not even looking at it. When is the last time you got away from all the electronics and all the buzz that goes on and just spent some time alone with the Lord? I love to be out. At, to me, when I go out in nature, away from buildings, away from people, like at the ocean or in the mountains, or, it, it just, it's awesome. You worship because you see what the Lord, it just so reminds you of Him, and it's a beautiful time to worship. But we need to do that more often. We need to get unplugged and just spend some time with our Savior, communing with Him. So we might have this attitude that he would increase and I would decrease. Notice what the Lord told Martha. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him to her home. This is Lazarus' sister, by the way. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to him. Ah, good, Mary, great job. Mary's the disciple. She goes, I want to learn. Boy, this guy's got some stuff to say. Let me sit here. But Martha was distracted with all the preparation. Martha goes, well, we've got to have things right here. The Lord's here. We want to make sure everything he's comfortable and everything's right. So she's got the gift of serving, obviously. She's doing the preparations. And she comes up to him and he said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? So she's serving joyfully, right? <laughs> no, she's like, hey, what's the deal here? All right. Maybe she wanted to sit at the feet too, you know? But maybe she thought some other things needed to be done. He says, tell her to help me. I like it. She goes to the Lord. Will you tell my sister to get in here and help me? But the Lord answered and said to her, not the answer she wanted, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. You have to eat, right? But the Lord's saying, listen, there's one thing that's really necessary. He says, Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Mary has correctly discerned that listening to Yeshua and hearing His ways is more important than anything else she can choose. Listening to what Yeshua is teaching is the highest way that any of us can show honor to Him. And it's preferable to many of the human ways we seek to honor Him. The one thing that Yeshua seeks above all else from us is that we would spend time with Him. Don't you, do you ever get sick of Hearing people tell you how much they love you who don't care to spend any time with you? I'm serious. Because that's, you know, well, if you love me, you'd want to be with me. So don't tell me how much you love me if you don't want to be with me. And that's how it is with the Lord. Don't tell Him how much you love Him. Spend time with Him. That's what He wants more than anything else. He wants you to sit at His feet, as it were, and learn of Him. That needs to come first before all these other things. He will increase and we will decrease only as we spend time with Him. Now, let me say this as we close. We're talking about John and the importance of John and the humility of John. It's one thing that we have to understand here. It's important to remember that being a faithful servant of the Lord doesn't always guarantee a trouble-free life. This man was a humble man, okay? He was a humble servant. He was a faithful servant. He was the God-appointed forerunner of Messiah. And he gets thrown into prison and he gets beheaded. And people say, if the Lord loved me, what? Do you think he loved John? Yeah. This was his plan for John. Okay? So, you know, serving the Lord uh, in America, this health, wealth mentality, if I'm serving God, he's going to bless me with everything under the sun. Never have any problems. Listen, I got, a, I got news for you in the health, wealth doctrine. I don't know about the wealth part, but the health part, stop eating so much crap. Okay? <laughs> and you'll find the health part. All right? I mean, seriously. This is a serious issue in our day. And if you don't wake up to it, you're going to be dealing with a lot of medications that have tons of side effects. We can be healthy. I don't know how I got on that kick, but let's, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you this morning for this humble servant, John.
Lord, we know when our heart is poured into serving you, uh, we want to see results. And I guess John really was seeing results. The results were people leaving him and going to Messiah. I thank you for this humble man. I thank you for his desire that, that you would increase, Lord. And I pray that that would be just a true thing in every one of our lives, that we would desire that we would decrease, but you would increase. When people see us, they would see you in us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.